For those of you who are visiting with us this morning, we have been going through the Old Testament books of First and Second Samuel for quite a while. Um, today we're continuing on that path, a great journey in Second Samuel chapter 6. We'll be looking at the second half of this chapter, Second Samuel chapter 6. In this chapter, we see two attempts by King David to bring the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. What is David saying by wanting to bring the Ark into Zion, the city of Jerusalem, where he now is ruling? Well, basically that the Lord's presence must be the central focus and the reality of his kingdom, of David's kingdom. Unlike the previous king, King Saul, whom God had removed, David was not about to ignore the ark, which actually signified God's presence. Don't forget that the ark signifies and points directly to Christ. The Ten Commandments were inside it. This chest, the ark, Revealing God's perfection, his holiness. So Christ is the prophet who reveals to us by his word and spirit the will of God for salvation. There was a mercy seat on top of this chest made out of pure gold that covered the top of this chest. And that was the place the blood of the sin offering was sprinkled. This was the only thing that could come between the holy God's presence in his law, which shows us his perfection and our sin. So Christ is the priest who both offers the sacrifice of sin and is the sacrifice, bringing his own blood into the sanctuary. Hebrews 9 verse 12, we read, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. The presence of God at the ark is understood in the way he is said to demonstrate his rulership. Verse 2 here says that the ark of God is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. So here in chapter 6 is this incredible reference. David calls the ark the footstool of God in a parallel passage in 1 Chronicles chapter 28. So Christ is our king. He brought us to himself as he rules and defends us and as he restrains and conquers all of our enemies. So the ark points forward as everything does in the Old Testament, to the Messiah as prophet, priest, and king. And we saw last week in the first half of this chapter, chapter 6, the attempt, the first attempt to bring the ark to Jerusalem and how it failed. 
almost all of the specific instructions that God had given about how the ark was to be transported, which are found in Numbers, the book of Numbers, were disobeyed. God gave these instructions actually because he did not want his people to die. So his kindness is written all over these, these warnings, the rules. And the rules were simple. No touch, no look, no cart to carry it. And I hope you see the clear implication of, to all of creation that we dare not trifle with a God who is both real and holy. Real and holy. Uzzah was struck down by the Lord here in chapter 6, verse 7, because he touched the ark. It was a good intention, but his good intention did not matter. The cattle pulling it had stumbled. The ark looked like it was going to fall in the dirt. Uzzah reached out to keep that from happening, and he was struck down by God. He forgot the heat in God's holiness. He presumed, he presumed to think that the dirt was dirtier than himself. And we see how his presumption was unacceptable and dangerous before God Almighty. So we see David reacting to this event he wanted to do the right thing he wanted to make the chest that signified God's presence the center of his new kingdom he realized how important that was but we see here in the first chapter of chapter 6 that David reacted like most of us probably would to this situation he reacted with anger at God and then fear of God. He decided to cool off and rethink all this, so the ark is taken to the house, we read in verse 11 of Obed-Edom, and we read that it remained there for three months. And we left off last week noting something very interesting, that here is the ark, now at somebody's house, not in Jerusalem, and we read that the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And we're thinking, this is really strange. First, we see God's holiness, the heat of his holiness, actually striking down one of his own because he touched it. And then we see the house where it is taken richly blessed because it's there. So God's severity with Uzzah is now to be seen in light of his blessing on Obed-Edom and his household. Well, today we see the second attempt to bring the ark to Jerusalem. And I don't know about you, but I think it's kind of surprising that there actually is a second attempt. This shows you that David did know how important this is. But you know what many of us would have done? Just keep it there. I'm glad that guy's blessed. We're not sure about this holy God. 
uh, we know is there and we worship, but wow. Right? We had a vote. I wonder whether it would be 50-50 or whether it would be all on one side. That We'd just like it to kind of stay away. Well, the only reason there is this second attempt is, is because David hears of this blessing on Obed-Edom. And he gets the point. David gets the point. The Lord's true intent is to bless, not to destroy his people via the ark. So if you're able, would you please stand as I read just verses 12 through 15 of chapter 6 of 2 Samuel. We're going to look at the whole chapter, but we'll just look at this first paragraph to begin with. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Now, we don't hear in this particular account an extended commentary on how all of God's instructions about transporting the Ark of the Covenant were now being followed because nothing happened like before. But it's very clear that these instructions were followed. The change is noticed by the words in our text in verse 13 where it says, And when those who bore the ark. The parallel passage in 1 Chronicles 15 actually does explain this farther. Let me read that. It's in 1 Chronicles chapter 15 verses 1 through four, and then there's a little tad after that. First Chronicles 15, one through four. David built houses for himself in the city of David, and he prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. Then David said that no one but the Levites may carry the ark of God, for the Lord had chosen them to carry the ark of the Lord and to minister to him forever. And David assembled all Israel at Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the Lord to its place which he had prepared for it. And David gathered together the sons of Aaron and the Levites. Then if we go down to verse 12. And he said to them, You are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites. Consecrate yourselves, you and your brothers, so that you may bring up the ark of the Lord the God of Israel, to the place that I have prepared for it, because you did not carry it the first time. The Lord our God broke out against us because we did not seek him according to the rule. 
So the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel. And the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with the poles, as Moses has commanded according to the word of the Lord. So we remember that the ark had rings on each corner that special golden-laden poles were put through, and the men would carry them, carry the ark on, this, on this, their shoulders, but they see didn't touch the actual ark. That was the instructions, and this time we know they followed these instructions to the letter. And what about the rejoicing and the celebration? Well, we talked last week about how we think that our freedom to follow God according to His ways and His instructions inhibits us in expressing the emotions that may go along with knowing God Almighty and enjoying Him forever. Instead, Scripture shows us here that exactly the opposite happens. When we obey, when we are careful to follow Him, we are actually freed up exponentially greater to serve Him and to rejoice. And that's what we see here in this passage, is it not? Now that the ark was being transported into Jerusalem according to God's instructions, look what we see here. Verse 12, with rejoicing. Verse 14, David danced before the Lord with all his might. Verse 15, with shouting with the sound of the horn. Verse 16, David leaping and dancing before the Lord. Verse 17, they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. Verse 18, David blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. And then he distributed to all the people a cake of bread and a portion of meat and a case of raisins. Sounds pretty boring to me. Dale Ralph Davis writes, Here you are to cheer with the the Lord's joy. He's talking to us. As we read this, in reading the failed first attempt, you're supposed to tremble before before God's holiness. We're supposed to get that message. Both are emphasized in this chapter, the fearfulness and the gladness. In the Lord's presence, we are to both shudder and shout. Chapter 6 teaches us that a fearful sense of God's holiness does not suppress joy, but it actually stimulates it. And again, we need to remember verses like Psalm 2, the last part of verse 11. Rejoice with trembling. And we go, what's that mean? Well, we've got a picture of it right here in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Only a true child of God knows how true this seeming paradox, really is. The second attempt to bring the ark to the city of David is successful, but it does contain tragedy. We haven't read this part yet. 
Let me do that now, verse 16 through 23. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. And David turned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel the people of the Lord, and I will make merry before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. What is going on here? What inhabits David's house is this contempt that we see from Michael. Not the blessing that we see happening in Obed-Edom's house. Michael despised David in her heart as she looked out of the window and saw him leaping and dancing before the Lord. What she tells him when he gets home has been described by one commentator as sarcasm that is almost liquefied. Verse 20, And David returned to bless his household, but Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. Well, if you want the flavor of Michael's demeanor, listen to this. When David came home at last, tired and flushed, still delirious with the truth that he had been singing and dancing about all that day, Michael rose from her lounge on which she'd been reclining. Her makeup was just right. Not a wisp of untidy hair was out of place. Not a crease in her beautifully fitted gown. Her long lashes hung disdainfully over eyes that looked him up and down with a quick, contemptuous glance of scorn. Well, she said slowly, deliberately averting her eyes as if from some distinctly repugnant sight. What a spectacle. What a scene the king of Israel made of himself today. It was simply disgusting. Dancing about like that with all the people watching, kicking your legs up in the air in that shameless way. You should have been you should have seen the gaping of all the servant girls. It was positively vulgar, and she turned her back 
This is from an InterVarsity book from way back in the 60s. But it captures the picture, don't you think? Notice that in this passage that Michael's name is used four times. Three of the times David is speaking directly to her, and is when it's mentioned in this text, she is referred to as who? The daughter of Saul. And the other time, David is speaking directly to her, and even there he mentions your father. So every time we get this reference, Michael, daughter of Saul, what's the main concern? What's Michael's main concern? Royal dignity, proper decorum, outward appearances. In other words, a king has a certain image to maintain, and he shouldn't put himself on a level with the riffraff. And what was David's answer? He did not think the female servants were the audience. It was before the Lord, and he says that twice. God was the audience. It was not performance for people, but worship for the Lord, who he says chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. It's before the Lord that I will make merry or celebrate. Now, what else does David correct Michael on here? David not only has a different view of the audience, but he has a different view of dignity. Look at verse 22. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I'll be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you've spoken by them, I shall be held in honor. In other words... I'm willing to shame and humiliate myself even more than this. David sees himself not so much as Israel's king as he does the Lord's servant. That's the point. And humility is appropriate for servants. So for David, what is his dignity? His dignity is his humility. And for your information, and this is important because you read this all over the place by people who don't know any better probably, but in 1 Chronicles 15, 27, it says that David was clothed, clothed with, quote, a robe of fine linen, as also were all the Levites who were carrying the ark and the singers. Unquote. And then it says that David also wore a linen ephod. Fine linen robes were the usual clothing of the priests. A linen ephod was a close-fitting sleeveless outer vest extending to the hips and worn by priests, especially when officiating before the altar. So David had on two garments, the garments of a priest. The underlying one went, all the way almost to the floor. Because you didn't think that when you read that, when you heard that, did you? You thought he was wearing a, a mini skirt for a man. Or that he came from Scotland, he was the first Scottish kilt wearer. 
You see, that's not even a part of this. She was disturbed by the way he was dancing full blast and worshiping God, not because of any other reason. Shows you where our minds are. He's not infringing on the priest's office here. See, he had on priestly garments as the newly appointed king, bringing in the Ark of the Covenant. He had the priests, the Levites, the ones who were transporting the Ark. He had obeyed the instructions that God had given. He clearly sees himself as the humble, serving priest of the true king. That's what irked Michael. She wanted the dignity of the royal robes, being the queen. You get all that? Nevertheless, we should not miss this glimpse of the king in a priestly role as well, as we mention it, because we see it in prophecy. Places like Psalm 110, 1 and 4, Zechariah 6 has it. And we see it later in person in Christ, David's descendant and our reigning king and interceding priest. David is a type of Christ. Notice he also gives a blessing on the people in verse 18. Did you see that? Which is a what kind of a function? A priestly function. Number 6, 22 through 27 speaks to that. So even in the Middle East today, men are not supposed to show their legs. Anybody aware of that? But even with the priestly gown, there had to be a little revealed, which is what was so disturbing. But this helps us understand what Michael's real problem was, doesn't it? What do we learn from this disagreement between Michael and David? Michael, remember, is referred to as the daughter of Saul, which represents the previous old kingdom. That's why this is mentioned three times specifically and once he says, your father. The regime that valued what? The regime of Saul, what did he value? Appearances and propriety. And we saw that going through the first book of Samuel. Over and over and over again. What is socially acceptable? That's propriety. The appearance of being the king. That's what the people asked for, remember? We want a king who looks like a king and who's a warrior like a king because all the nations around us have a king like that. So God said, okay, I'll give you what you want. And they learned that was what they did not need, which is why he called and had in mind, of course, David. So King Saul and his regime 
valued appearances and propriety more than heartfelt devotion and joy. And over and over again, we see Saul not even having a clue what that was. No sincerity of heart, no real worship, but just going through the actions because he was supposed to as the king. And here we have exactly the opposite. We have David expressing devotion and joy demonstrated here and explained here for us in our text. And that is such a blessing and a gift to us. Verse 23 says, And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. And this shows how a successor of hers, thus Saul, his, she's, his daughter, would never rule Israel. That's the point here. This is not saying that God not blessing someone with a child is an answer of some sin or disobedience. Okay, And that is so important to get. Here, it's a picture. God's saying nobody in Saul's family is ever going to rule again. That's the picture. The Messiah will not come through Saul's family. He will come through David's descendants. And this shows that in this specific case... um, the Lord's discipline is seen. And God had changed things by bringing David to the throne. A clearer picture of his kingdom begins to emerge here in the first part of Second Samuel. A clearer picture of the Messiah is starting to be seen as well as a prophet, priest, and king. When Jesus came, we know that hardly anybody got this, but there were... Many who did, who recognized that this is what the Old Testament shows about the future Messiah that Christ fulfilled. So what can we say about all this rejoicing and celebration over the ark, which signifies God's presence? Can can I touch this subject since it's touched here? Okay, this is hard. Because we see excesses on each side. Here we go. Remember, Psalm 2, rejoice with trembling. In our day, we see extremes becoming commonplace on both ends of this spectrum. Do we not? What was once considered reverential awe and wonder has been replaced in many places with chaos and sensuality. And it resembles the church in Corinth. It's a whole part of the Bible that addresses this. We see all this, and because we do know the Lord, we want to worship. We want to worship Him in spirit and in truth. But the fact of the matter is that we may become hesitant to express our joy and thankfulness because of all the excesses that we may suspect actually demean God and reduce him to a divine giver of exciting experiences. And I would be willing to bet that most of us are on this particular path. It's hard to figure out. Even if you're feeling it. And what we see here in 2 Corinthians 6 
is a celebration of an event. Now, granted, it's a one-time event, the biggest event that involved the whole nation. That's hard to picture, but that's what was going on. Even if one particular member only watched from the distance of her window. Notice where she was. Yet we see loud rejoicing with singing and musical instruments, even with shouting to the sound of the horn. But even this was not chaotic. There's, there's some real important facts here. With everyone doing whatever they please, that was not what was happening here. First Chronicles, again, especially chapter 15, gives a fairly detailed account of who was doing what and why. The people are delineated. These guys are going to sing. These guys are going to orchestrate. These guys are going to play instruments. These guys are standing over here. These guys are doing this and that. It was planned. It was ordered. Everyone had a place. Does that help? Yeah, it helps. And you might remember in 1 Corinthians 14, 40, Paul has a little, it wasn't advice, Advice you can say, well, I will or I won't. This was more in the face of, hey, you need to do this. You guys are a little out there. He said, but all things should be done decently and in order. It also allowed God's people to express all the joy that came with recognizing God's presence in their kingdom as signified by bringing the ark to Zion. So do you see both is going on? It was well planned, it had order, but it also allowed the people to express all the joy of this incredible, incredible event. And that's important. So, we've got this question hanging out here. Can we grow in our understanding of the joy of the Lord? We can muster enthusiasm for all sorts of things. Sports, especially. We have no issue with that. Why is it so hard to overcome a sort of emotional detachment over the person and work of Christ? And you know, for many of us, it may be because we were forced to be in those situations at some point in our life, and it turned our stomachs because we knew what the base of it was. And that is understandable. But maybe the following will help. Each of us is made differently, and we get hung up over degrees of how we express things. True? When you describe your friends and family members to other people, we exaggerate. That person is crazy fun. That person, you can't pull anything out of them. It takes two hours to get them to say yes, no, or maybe. You know, and there's this huge thing. That's the way we're made. We're different. And this is why the church offers a place to gather to help us channel the, the expressions of the joy of the Lord appropriately this is quite a task I heard one man of God who's still living 
This is not some Puritan from 300 years ago. You're going to think it is, but it's not. And he said he liked the slower, deeper, rich, theology-ridden hymns and choruses just because he needed and relished the time to actually think about what he was singing. Can you identify with that? Many of you in here are going, yeah, glorious lyrics, beautiful music. I can actually say the amazing grace of God, and I've got just a second to go, well, what is that? Oh, yeah, and we think about it. A lot of us are in this category just because of nature, and it's that time in life, okay? But it's still true for everyone. So um, is the other's response of louder, magnanimous, excited joy and praise just because they still can't believe God would provide a Savior just for them who died in their place for their sins so they could stand before God Almighty clothed in His Savior's righteousness? That's appropriate too. You can't stand it when you realize that God sent His Son to pay the penalty for sin that you deserve. And you just got to let it out sometimes. How can anyone really know and experience that truth and remain detached in how they show their appreciation. So, let's sum it up like this. This is, I hope, balanced. Whether it's by a focused, heartfelt singing of truth about God, or more by a visible, audible response in a higher decibel range, or by a quiet but shaken heart that realizes the depth of its deliverance, exuberant prayers, praise and tears of repentance should not be strangers to the people of God. We should gather, we gather knowing all that. Order it. Recognize it. And knowing while you're singing your heart out, the person next to you may not be able to even open their mouth. Not because they can't sing, but because they're overcome with God's grace. This chapter has a lot to say. Now, this was a big event. It had to be well planned. It's, when you think of all of Israel gathered in one place, it's, it's a picture that we've seen on TV, but not for this purpose. William Blakey wrote this, There are doubtless times to be calm and times to be enthusiastic, but it can be right to give all, but can it be right to give all our coldness to Christ and all our enthusiasm to the world? That's a, that's a good question. Does the presence of God ever move us? That's really the bottom line. We get to celebrate what Christ ordained to signify his presence. Imagine that. The Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table. And for you that are visiting here, we, we do this the second Sunday usually of every month. So this is a monthly, uh, regular time for us. Um, and... This signifies Christ's person and work 
And since we eat and drink the symbols, it's obvious that Christ's presence in us, him being our very life, is one of the things that he wants us to consider as we participate of this meal. I'll have a few further um, comments and instructions, but first, we're going to be led in singing. 